Shabbat Shalom. Hey, they have me all queued up and then I don't realize when I'm ready to go. But hey, what a blessing. Turn in your scriptures to Ivrim, the book of Ivrim, Hebrews, and we are working our way through and we're on the fifth chapter, the fifth chapter. But what I really want us to focus on as we go through the word together, I truly believe that we understand the context not only the language, but the context and the setting of what was going on at the time of the writing of the book of Hebrews. Then we can look back and understand that our author is often communicating those wilderness years back when the children of Israel had come out of Egypt and they were going through those trials, those tribulations in the wilderness. And he was using those experiences of the forefathers to communicate to his present audience so that they could understand the perils of the time that they lived in, not be distracted, but then learn from the past mistakes so that they wouldn't fall prey to the very same mistakes that the wilderness generation fell prey to. So if we're now 2,000 years further down the road, I think for us to have the full context of everything, we need to and realize what went before in the wilderness generation. We need to realize what happened around the destruction of the temple in 70 of the common era. And as today's generation, hearing this message of the book of Hebrews, it is paramount that we just don't think we're in a Bible study. Because if we do, we're missing the whole purpose of the word of Yahuwah is to what? To move us on to spiritual maturity, but also to warn us by giving us big picture biblical concepts, using the language, using the themes within the scripture all the way forward and history to teach us that we have a problem in our present situation that is going to be, in fact, that we're living in a parallel universe to not only the wilderness generation that went through our midbar, the midbar, the wilderness, we are in a parallel reality to the audience of the book of Hebrews with the governmental system that they were under the influence of, the Romans, and the pressing of that on their faith. When we look at the scriptures today and we go through each chapter, I believe we're going to get revelation on how we're to live today, but also to be warned of what happened to them is going to happen in our generation. And I say all that to say this, and you all know, it seems that the headlines, the conversations with regular people, even Christian people, is all about the politics. Um, Did you see the debate last night? Every time you open up the newspaper, it's about this election. It's about... Hillary Clinton, it's about Jeb Bush, it's about all of these little figures that they parade before us. And quite honestly, I'm sick of it because it is such a circus show and such a distraction 
while in reality, while in reality, the United States government, the globalists, have armed and sponsored Al-Qaeda and ISIS and are using them as a war machine to go around and quash, squash any government that doesn't submit to their globalist agenda. And when you start actually talking to people about what's going on, they glass over and just have no concept. I mean, whether it's talking about people, their idea of history, it, it to me is just astounding, astounding how lost we are in the culture and how everybody gets just sucked in to this dog and pony show that is paraded before us every waking moment from the newsstands to the internet to the television, to the conversations that you'll have with people at work, it seems to me that truly, truly people are asleep. So I hope today, as we go through Hebrews chapter 5, we will begin to see again more and more clarity with what is going on today, because I don't think we have time to waste. I really don't. I really don't. What we're going to look at today in the fifth chapter, first of all, we're going to start off with the qualifications, the qualifications needed for the high priest. And that, that high priest is going to be very different from the Levitical priest that was only for a limited time, the Levitical priest, because death came to each priest. But this high priest, he is a priest, Leolam Vayed, forever and ever. And we're going to then finish up today with dealing with spiritual immaturity, which I think, quite honestly, when people get sucked into all of this media thing and they're believers, it really, when they start saying, well, who are you going to vote for? Who are you going to... And they go, I, I, I just wonder... What are they teaching you in your assemblies that you are even distracted by this? This is just spiritual immaturity because we should be not focused on the kingdoms of men, but we should be focused on the kingdom of Yahuwah. But it shows to me and demonstrates a lack of spiritual maturity that you could all get sidetracked by any of these puppet politicians to think that they would actually come forward and represent the faith. Come on. They're bought and sold for before they even get on the screens. It's very easy to drop a little Christianese here and there, but they will never represent the biblical faith that was once delivered to the saints. If you think they will, then you lack maturity in the Word and in the Scriptures. So let's get into the first verse of chapter 5. For every Kohen Haggadol, high priest, taken from among men, is appointed for men in things pertaining to Yahuwah, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is the one who can humble himself. And this is the beginning of our text. We're going to see right here that there are in fact four prerequisites for the priesthood. That Mashiach must meet these four prerequisites for the priesthood. Let's look at these before we go any further. Number one, he must be taken from among men. 
meaning he abode amongst humanity. Yet we know that he is not from humanity's origins dust. He is in the flesh, but his flesh came from the Shamaim, the heavens. But he did abide with humanity. He's not an angel. He's certainly not a ghost, but he was amongst humanity in the flesh. The second prerequisite is he must be able to offer gifts and sacrifice. And you can find this in Maaseh Shlechim, the Acts of the Apostles in chapter 2, verse 38. It says, Then Peter, Kipha, said unto them, Repent and be immersed, every one of you, in the name of Yahusha Moshiach, for the remission of sins. And ye shall receive the gift of Ruach HaKodesh. You see, in reality, this speaks of the blood offering and the meal offerings. This very verse and this second prerequisite, he must be able to offer both gifts and sacrifices, meaning he must be able to offer both the blood offerings and the meal offerings. And we know that Mashiach's sacrifice is that blood offering, and the Ruach HaKodesh is what? The Ruach HaKodesh is the meal offering because that is what sustains us, is it not? Being able to, after receiving the blood offering, we're not left to hunger, but daily we can receive more and more nourishment through Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. So we must not stop at the blood offering, but we must daily press into the meal offerings, the meal that is provided, that good bread, that good manna from the heavens. The Ruach HaKodesh comes to provide that for us and is what? The Ruach HaKodesh truly is the sustainer, the sustenance of the believer, meaning our meal offering. Let's look at this third prerequisite of the Kohen Haggadah, the high priest, he must be able to sympathize. And you can, you can skim over that very, very quickly, but we have to understand the context of the priesthood at the time of the writing. Because the high priests in Jerusalem, they were not sympathetic to the people. They were bought and sold positions and they couldn't give a rip about the people. Yet now we have a great Kohen Haggadah high priest who is able to sympathize. He has to be compassionate as one who has experienced infirmity. He deals gently. I love it in the Greek. It means to suffer without harshness. To suffer without harshness. And this, if you want to pray for me, this is the, my, I'll confess it to you right now. This is the area that I need prayer in my life because I, this may be a surprise to you, but I run crazy hot or I'm down. I am hot or I'm, I, I go in, into hibernation. But this is what I need in my life. And that is to be able to sympathize or to be in the middle of something. Balance. To be balanced. To be in the middle of something. 
to be fully involved. That's what it really means because Yahusha, he avoids the twin extremes, the twin extremes of apathy to excessive feelings. And I tend to be apathetic or be excessively fired up. And um, that's great in ministry, but not so good with the raising of the children and the family. I'm like either oblivious or I am fired up. And I'm like, I need, I need to really learn, really learn right here of this third prerequisite of the Mashiach, being able to sympathize, be balanced, and to have, bring balance to things rather than to be like on fire or like so in the word that I'm like, I haven't a clue what just happened around me. So this is my area of weakness, to be either apathetic or to have excessive feelings. So to try and bring that balance into my life, that really convicted me as I was working through that this week. Um, The fourth prerequisite for the Mashiach is he must be appointed by Yahuwah. He must be appointed by Yahuwah, unlike the previous 240-year history of the priesthood at the time of this writing. Because the audience knows that the high priests before, they were not appointed by Elohim. They were appointed by men. Yet we find the fourth prerequisite of our Kohen Haggadah, he truly is appointed by Yahuwah. Let's look at the second verse. And he must have rachamin, mercy, on the ignorant and the erring. He must have mercy on the ignorant and the erring, for that he himself also is surrounded with weaknesses. Now, these words, they actually parallel Melech Dawid, King David, in Psalm 119, specifically the 176th verse. I'll read it to you. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. You see, we have to understand when we look at those around, the ignorant and the erring, The ignorance is a source of sin. You see, many people, they will, oh, I didn't know that. We have the word before us. And your ignorance is the source of your sin. Yet the culture excuses that. Oh, well, no. The culture may excuse it. But he will not excuse it. Your ignorance is the source of your sin that is permeating through your very generations. And you will be held accountable for it. That isn't taught in the church. But your ignorance is the source of your sin. Your ignorance is the source of your sin. Their sins of ignorance erring. Erring, though, is the result of sin. I mean, we could have, we could literally stop right here in the second verse. I could build a whole teaching just on that because that is not taught in the church. Responsibility, personal responsibility. Ignorance is the source of your sin. Erring is the result of your sin. Right there, that 
Selah. As high priest, he must deal gently and he must bring balance. And that's where I must learn myself. Can I get a amen over there, Tamara? I know she wants to. You did at home when I, when I was talking to you about this. You did now. I was sitting in front of the wood stove in my leather chair, working through the word. And I was like, honey, I really feel convicted about this. And she's like, oh, we need to write that down and put it on the fridge. <laughs> you did. You said that. We, yes. What did you say again? I said, and I, I repeated, you need to write that down and put it on the fridge. Yes, exactly. Every time I go for the half and half for my tea, it's right there. Balance, be balanced, be balanced. But what we do find is that that Levitical earthly priest, he was actually in sin. He was so in sin that he had to offer sacrifices for his sins before he could even minister to the people. But not our great Cohen Huggadol. He, of course, is the sinless one that has to offer no sacrifice but himself for the sins of the people, not for himself. A huge, a a huge difference. Because, you see, unlike the Levitical high priest, Moshiach doesn't have the disadvantage of having to offer sacrifice for his own sins. And by the time of the first century, the position of the highest priesthood, it had been defiled and it had been degraded. It was in a shambles. It was in a shambles. The second temple period was called the age of wrath. The age of wrath. And they had the preposterous priests occupying the priesthood. And this account is from the Annals of History. Listen to this, quote. Once on the Feast of Tabernacles, the populace pelted the high priest with citrons. You know, one of the four species. He's up there. Can you imagine? He's up there supposedly doing the holy business, and you as the holy brethren are like, hey, and you start lobbing citrons at him. Because it was such a degraded position. He had degraded the position so much for over 240 years. Once on the Feast of Tabernacles, the populace pelted the high priest with citrons because he insisted on performing the water libation ceremony in a way which didn't commend itself to them as proper. He poured the water on the ground beside the altar after the Sadducean manner and not on the altar itself. He just willy-nilly poured, and they just like, cabbage, citrons, and, and they took him out because it had been so corrupted, so corrupted. There were murders, there were assassinations, There was trickery throughout the Hasmonean period. In fact, all the way up to the destruction of the temple 240 years later, the high priesthood was in chaos. It was in chaos at the time of this writing. Let me give you a little bit of history for those history buffs 
on what had gone on in the past few hundred years at the time of this writing with the high priesthood. After the disposition of Ananias III in 174 before the common era, Jason and later Menalius were appointed to the high priesthood by Antiochus IV. Alchemus was appointed by Demetrius I in 162 before the Common Era. The Hasmonean Jonathan, well, he was appointed by Alexander Ballas. He was the putative son of Antiochus IV in 152 before the Common Era. Now, his brother Shimon and his successors, they were appointed by decree by the Jewish people in 140 before the Common Era. So, so far you see the thread that none of the high priests were appointed by Yahuwah. And that is, was very powerful. And we can read through this, and we just can do a cursory read. But we have to understand the impact that it meant with our audience. And I will go down a rabbit trail in a minute. Because it, it does apply to us today with these presidential elections. Because everybody that is asleep in the churches or the... That I always give slack to the secular people, the heathen, because they, they, they don't you know, have the word to guide and form them. But in the Christian church, we should know better. Those that are still in the church that have the word should know better because we are guided by the word, supposedly. But what we'll have is that these people today are get all caught up in the presidential elections thinking that, oh, well, they're appointed by the, the pe- people. App- appointed by... If you believe they're appointed by the people, then you are as much a part of the problem. Just as if this audience approved of the appointment by men of the high priesthood. You are no different. You have to come out of her, my people, recognize the farce, the fallacy, the lies and the deceptions that have been thrust upon you by the ruling elite class. And you have to say, no, this is not what the word of Yahweh has for his people. We are to be governed by him and by his people, his prophets, and his priests. We are not to be governed by the heathen. And then I know people are going to take, you know, to the, you know, the Romans road and, you know, submit to government. But, um, you know, a text out of context creates a lot of problems. And uh, error begets error and whatnot. So anyway, let me continue on because this is very important because then with the fall of the Hasmonean dynasty, the high priests were appointed successively. It gets worse. They were appointed successively by Herod the Great. You know, Herod the Great from 37 to 4 before the Common Era. Then they were appointed by Archelaus, four before the common era to six of the common era. Then the high priesthood was um, appointed later from six of the common era all the way through to 41 of the common era. They were appointed by the Roman governors. The high priesthood was appointed by the Roman governors. 
And then members of, Herod fa- of Herod's family, from 41 all the way through to 66 of the common era, people put up with the high priesthood being appointed by Herod's family. So let's back up a minute. When Yahushua was walking around, the high priesthood was appointed by the Romans and later by Herod's own family. Yet, the scripture is evidently clear who's the one to do the appointing. Do you see how much disarray? Yet, there's not that much that's spoken of it, about it, in the Brit Hadashah. Until you get into Hebrews and you slow down and you go, hang on a minute. This has got huge ramifications for us today. Are we going to glance and skim through that second verse? Or are we going to stop, meditate and go, hang on a minute. If this is being spoken about then, what do we have to say about our present situation? Do you think the appointment of presidents, kings and these sheiks by men has got anything to do with your future. Because ultimately it does, unless you come out of it and realize that we need to realize that this is all part of the big collapse, just as it was part of the big collapse in the day of calamity of 70 of the common era, when Yahweh said, enough, we're done, enough. And things are so perilous, I wonder just how much time we have. Can we stand? I mean, I'll puke up. Can we stand eight years of the Clintons again? I mean, really? Do you realize if that happens, then we literally have a dictatorship that's gone on for like 25 or 30 years, two ruling classes ruling the people. Oh, maybe you could have um, Jeb Bush. Again, over a quarter century of two families ruling. But we'll get into this and we'll realize that we've literally had one ruling family over us since the inception, 1776. The last high priest was Fanny, son of Samuel, Shemuel, and he was appointed by popular ballot. Sound familiar? He was appointed by popular ballot. That's called what? Voting, democracy, during the war against Rome. That's when he was appointed. You see, those in Qumran, they had gone into the wilderness. They had set themselves apart as holy Kadosh people. And they were seeking the priesthood, the true priesthood, just like you and I are. They had come out of her, my people. They had come out of the corrupt Hasmonean system. They were odd folk. And this is what they had to say regarding the high priesthood. They referred to the high priest as the wicked priest. The wicked priest. We can look down in verse 2 at this Greek word that's used for ignorant and erring. And it has in mind the history of the line of corrupt high priests that had truly besmirched the priesthood. It was the high priests that were ignorant and erring. 
And in our day, it's the Queen of England and the royal line. It's the Saudis. And it's our presidential presidents and candidates that are truly the ones that are ignorant and erring, that corrupt the whole nation and the people. At this point, I do want, it's important, I've touched on this before, and we'll go into, down the wormhole, if you will allow me, but we'll dig down into the wormhole just a little deeper than the last time that I spoke on this. The reason I'm doing this is because I had a conversation with a very, very learned Christian friend of mine this week, and I was just, just kind of, quite honestly, just disappointed and I was kind of gutted because it just went on to, well, who are you going to vote for? And, and all this talk about the presidential candidates and, well, this guy, you know, he, he came out on his campaign and he's really for the Lord. And, and I listened and I listened and I, I tried to bite my tongue. And, and finally, I start to share a little bit and you get the glass over on the eyes, you know. And then I just had to shut it down because I'm like, uh, in the old days, I would have just ramrodded it through. But I've learned that, you know, they just, it's, a, it's just literally living in another world. No concept of where I'm about to go. But you, holy brethren, I pray you jump down into this wormhole with me because Let's look at the corrupt high priesthood. We've looked at it for 240 years before the destruction of the temple. But now, in our parallel universe, let's look at the corruption of the equivalency of leadership that we have in our day. Because really, it is a war between the line of the one true high priest, Moshiach, and the line of the world, the Egyptians, or the pharaohs. And it really goes all the way back to the 18th dynasty. And later we'll see the Hasmoneans. And it will go all the way through to the presidential candidates that are being popped up on your screen today. Literally, if you can track with me for long enough. 2016 is going to be a crazy, insane year if you're paying attention. If you're paying attention. It is going to be insane crazy. It's, I can't even believe that we've made it through. We haven't, but we almost have eight years of Obama. But you have no idea how much this country has changed because of all of the signatures and the pen and the phone. You have no idea until he leaves. If he leaves, he may, he may do something that will keep him in power as a dictator for six months and then progressively extend it. We'll see. We'll see. But anyway, there is a war. What happened to those pharaohs? What happened to those pharaohs of the 18th dynasty? Well, they actually migrated to Europe through Christopher Columbus and through Christopher Columbus to the USA. You're going to find that today 
the very presidents, the very queen, the Saudis, these are in fact the very pharaonic bloodlines that have been with us all the way through since the 18th dynasty, all the way through since the 18th dynasty. Now, I don't know if some of you have seen the familiarities, but we have to understand that um, back in the middle of the 20th century, there was a lot of archaeology going on around the 30s, 40s, and 50s in the tombs of Egypt. We also have to start understand, especially in Britain, in some of the universities, and in France, where many, many of these um, artifacts were taken. Even in Qumran, they took some of the bodies and they, they, end, they, they, they unearthed them. And, and they end up in universities in France and Paris. They end, end up in universities in England where they have different laws than we do when it comes to genetic splicing and genetic ma manipulation. So when they went into the tombs of the pharaohs in the 40s and the 50s, and they discovered these mummies. What do you think they did with those mummies? Just put them in a museum? Or do you think they took the science, <clears throat> excuse me, and experimented? And do you think that it's a possibility today that we actually have some of these elite ruling class are taken through DNA manipulation from the very pharaohs? Well, just cursory, you know, let's go deep into this wormhole. Have a look at, at you know, the president, Barack Obama. Look at when he was born. Well, you don't even know where he was born, right, yet. That's still a bit of a cloudy issue, is it not? And if you bring that up, then you are a birther and besmirched. When in reality, you're like, well, if there's no issue, then provide the documentation. So he was created around the time of the 1940s, 1950s. And uh, look at the symbol, the resemblance between him and King Tut's father. Then look at... I mean, it's astounding to me. It's astounding to me. King Tut's father was Akhenaten, and his daughters, look at the resemblance of his daughters to the Obama clan, and look at the resemblance of Akhenaten's wife, Queen Tai, to Michelle. Well, you just, you know, go down that little wormhole, and uh, there's a whole bunch of research and reading in that. But what happened to these pharaohs? These pharaohs, ultimately, they believed that they would live again, didn't they? That's why they went into the pyramids and they put all of their treasure there. They believed that they were going to live again. Well, who knew that they would actually live again through bloodline preservation from the 1950s and 60s, where they have taken DNA from the Egyptian mummies and they have then done experimentation on that. Is it possible? I'll just suggest, is it possible that they would make or try to make test tube babies out of these experiments on the DNA of the mummies in the 1950s and 1960s? And if they did... 
What age would those test you babies be now? They would be the age of our ruling elite, would they not? A little far-fetched for you, maybe. But then just look and see what they're doing in France and doing in England with genetic manipulation. Because they're way ahead of what we're doing here in the United States of America. Let's look at the bloodline of Ramesses II. It was from 1295 to 1228 before the Common Era. He was considered to be the greatest pharaoh of all. The greatest pharaoh of all. In fact, he was the country's master architect. He was into sacred geometry. And his name can be found on almost every ancient shrine. The gold mines of Nubia, they made Pharaoh Ramesses rich beyond imagination, rich beyond imagination. This bloodline also includes the demonic human hybrids who ruled Sumer, Babylon, Greece, and Troy, which today, I believe, rule our world. This key bloodline comes down through the most famous Egyptian queen, Cleopatra and is connected to the Hebrew-Egyptian royal bloodline from 60 to 30 before the Common Era. And who was Cleopatra's lover? Well, none other than the most famous Roman emperor, Julius Caesar. And she bore him a son who became Ptolemy Fourteenth. She also bore twins with Mark Antony, who had his own connections to that line, and there were many offshoots from that. This bloodline also connected to Herod the Great, you know, the Herod that continued on to the Roman Piso family. And then this same bloodline, it's all the way from Ramesses, connects to guess who? Constantine. Constantine. Constantine the Great, the Roman emperor in 325, we know what he did. He turned Christianity into what it is today. And it was based on his ancestors' stories. And he brought all of that syncretism of the pharaohs into the very religion because that was all part of his family, family legacy and genealogy. Then we have King Ferdinand of Spain and Queen Isabella of Castile. They were the sponsors, of course, of Christopher Colombo, who instigated the Spanish Inquisition, 1478 to 1834. And then, of course, we get to the King Jimmy, which was commissioned by none other than the same bloodline, King James I of England they can all trace their bloodline back to Ramesses II. You see, the line of James, according to genealogy sources, can be traced back to 1550 before the Common Era and beyond, and it includes many Egyptian pharaohs, including Ramesses II. Now, the bloodline moved into France and northern Europe through the Franks, 
the Morovs, the Morovi, who gave his name to the Morovian bloodline. And it continues with the rest of the Morovian clan, and that's how you come up with, with clans like the Clovis clan, the Dagobah clan, who connected to the elite that rule today in society. And we have the Priory of Sion, the Priory of Sion. We have the René Le Chateau and the Mystery of Landuch. You see, we are not the ones voting for these people. Ten years ago, nobody had heard of Barack Obama. And then miraculously, he appears on the scene, and now you're you're almost down the end of the road, and it's all accepted. And nobody questions. I mean, look at the Bush family legacy and the connections with Adolf Hitler. And again, we'll we'll look at this because Adolf Hitler, Winston Churchill, it's all part of this. I mean, it truly is the matrix if you're paying attention. If you're paying attention. Otherwise, this scares the pants off people and they're like this and they glass over. And they'd rather realize that, they'd rather think that, well, you you know, George Bush was a good Christian man. Oh, Ted Cruz, good Christian man. From the Merigovians, um, this bloodline connections to our present day include Charlemagne, 742 to 814, and he ruled as emperor of the West in the Holy Roman Empire. And then we have a stream of French kings that were collect- connected to this bloodline of Ramesses II, including Robert II, Philip I and II, and then Philip III, and then we've got Louis I all the way through, all of those Louis, all the way through through to Louis XVI. They're all connected to this Ramesses bloodline. And the latter, Louis XVI, he married Marie Antoinette. You know, and, and you talk to people now and they, they have no concept. Oh, oh, Marie Antoinette, you mean in that movie? Oh, oh, yeah, seriously. Unless it's in a bloody movie, that no clue. Oh, Marie Antoinette, you mean in the zombie movie? And, yeah, I mean, they, they, take, they take things now and they spin it into Hollywood movies and people have no connection to the real historical character. They actually only know, and they think, oh, it's just a movie character. It's scary. It truly is. It truly is scary to me. Because the more divorced from our history that we get, the easier we are to be enslaved and taken over. The easier we are to be enslaved and to be taken over. Louis XVI married Marie Antoinette. This same bloodline and both were executed in the French Revolution. But they produced a son who became Daniel Pesseur, who was taken to the United States where he became the secret force behind Morgan and Carnage empires. And he owned vast amounts of real estate, banking, and industrial industries and industrial holdings. This bloodline also connects to the de Merci family, which supported Christopher Columbus and funded him and produced Catherine de Medici, the Queen of France, who died in 1589. And who was her doctor? 
Nostradamus. I mean, it's, it's just this stuff will literally, this is the stuff that burns me hot, that keeps me up too late, and then I don't sleep, and then the next day I'm like apathetic and not paying attention to anything, and it's like, this is why. And I have, I have little patience nowadays for all of this nonsense. I just walk away because I'm like, if I really engage, you will never talk to me again. You will never talk to me again. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yes, her doctor was Nostradamus. We're also going to see this bloodline connects to René d'Anjou. We'll look at the Duke of Lorraine, the House of Lorraine, which employed Nostradamus and Christopher Columbus. Oh, my goodness. The bloodline relatives of the Demesis and the House of Lorraine, the Queen Isabella of Castile, King Ferdinand of Spain, these were all sponsors of Columbus when he discovered the Americas. They were all sponsors. This was all orchestrated. I really have to keep an eye now with the homeschooling curriculum with my children. All these great Christian founders. Are you insane? These guys were Masonic cabal. They were trying to create their own Masonic kingdom. Oh, yes, with the Masons, there's their little Christianese in there to throw you off the scent, you know. But we are no longer spiritually immature that we will fall for that stuff. When I was in the church, oh, yes, the Constitution, what a great Christian document. You're a sovereign citizen. Hang on a minute. The only sovereign in the Scriptures is... Is it not him? Am I a sovereign? I don't think so. I think I'm a slave to the master. Let's get it right here. You see, the Masonic cabal is all about the elevation of man under their theistic system. But that's not what the scripture teaches. You actually start getting into the constitution, you'll see how unbiblical it truly is. But you don't want to go there because you'll upset a whole bunch of people. You see, it was Masonic in its inception, Masonic in its very inception. But let's continue on this bloodline because the bloodline comes to the Americas. We can see the Hasburgs were the most powerful family in Europe under the Holy Roman Empire. There was Geoffrey Planagent and the Planagent royal dynasty in England. Then there was King John, of course, King John, the one who signed the Magna Carta. And then we have King Henry I. King Henry II and III. And of course, they were extremely close to the Knights Templar, as was King John. And then later on, we have Mary Stuart and the Stuart dynasty, which included King Jimmy, of course, the sponsor of the King Jimmy itself. Then we've got King George I. We have King George II, King George III, all connected to this pharaonic bloodline of Ramesses II, the very bloodline that they dig up 
now, and um, you just, again, look at the similarities with the pictures of the president and look back at what was going on uh, around the time of his birth with those test tube babies in Egypt. Just saying, just saying. Then continue on. We've got King Edward I, second and third, and then we end up with a more familiar face with Queen Victoria. This bloodline goes on down to Edward VII, King George V, King George VI, and finally we end up with Queen Elizabeth II. And you think I'm joking. This is all through Burke's peerage, which will tell you and show you the ancestry. Now, we go through Prince Charles and Elizabeth's other offspring, Anne, Andrew, and Edward. Of course, Prince William and Harry from Charles' marriage to Princess Diana. Now let's look at the US presidents. We've got George Washington, John Adams, John Quincy Adams, Thomas Jefferson, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and George Bush are all named in the charts, charts, excuse me, of, as strands of this very bloodline. And it was passed on to George, of course, our presidential um, candidate now, Jeb Bush, his, his brother, of course, George W. Bush Jr., and his brother, Jeb Bush. In fact, if you go deeply enough through all of this genealogical research, you'll find out that all of the presidents, all of the presidents that we've ever had are from this line. You the people. Just like they the people, back at the time of the writing of the book of Hebrews, you see, our leaders are supposed to be appointed by Yahweh. That's why we have kings, prophets, and priests, so we can enter into prayer and supplication, not the casting of a ballot, because by the time that happens, you are in a corrupted system that came from the Greeks called democracy, which is totally unbiblical. It's totally unbiblical. It enslaves you all, enslaves you all. Gene genealogical sources like the New England Historical Genealogical Society, Burke's Peerage, they've shown that 33, and these, these, are, these are legitimate, legitimate genealogical research places. I'll repeat it. The New England Historical Genealogical Society and Burke's Peerage. They will show you that 33 of the 42 presidents to Clinton are related to Charmelaine, and 19 are related to England's Edward III, both of whom of this bloodline which connects all the way back to the 18th Pharaonic dynasty bloodline. If you don't like what I've communicated to you, Take it up with Burke's Peerage and the New England Historical Genealogical Society. You see, people just can't swallow the truth because it is so sound. So I was explaining this. I'm not sure if it was to my wife or to my children. I was explaining this world is so corrupted it is so far off course, it is so despicable that when you and I are in the word and doing things 
the way we're supposed to be. I think it was to you guys. In a holy, holy manner, we to the world are viewed as insane. Crazy. We have brother in the back showing us that Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump are distant cousins. They relate back to the 14th century and was the son of King Edward III. I just mentioned that lineage to you. You see... If we take what I'm saying seriously, it is terrifying. So people can't deal with it. They won't. Because the consequences, the ramifications means that this whole thing is going to come tumbling down. Just like the ramifications, if they really understood and took seriously what had been going on, in the time of the Hasmoneans, all the way up through Yeshua walking, then if they took that seriously and they walk with that in spiritual maturity, they would have realized that everything around them would have come tumbling down, their economy, their food, and they would have been enslaved. And did it? Yes. And will it with us? Yes. It is unsustainable the way we are living. It is non-sustainable. And that doesn't mean that we have got to all be driving Toyota Priuses to make it sustain. That is not what I'm talking. That's what they'll tell you to do. You're better off driving a 1970s Cutlass. That's way more environmental friendly than all the material that went in to build a Toyota Prius. You want to be environmental? Keep driving your 1970s Cutlass, because it's already being built. It's already got everything in it. Now you're going to go and take new resources to build a toy. I mean, it's, it's insane, but that's what they sell you. It could be driving along. When I first came to America, those nice big longs, I love all these cars, don't I? And she's like, I see these cars like the Cordoba and all and I'm like, oh, that is so sweet. And she's like, my wife's like, that is, I'm like, that is a nice ride. You know, you see those, they're massive. I love those vehicles. And Tamara's like, you were definitely not born here. You see some of those big Buicks, the Cordoba? Well, oh, they're huge. We could have some fun in one of those. <laughs> Camping. Camping, thank you, brother. Keep it holy. Be good for Sukkot. Much cheap, cheaper than an RV. <laughs> My goodness. That's a great bit of information, Donald Trump, right there. You see, um, we, we find ourselves, though, in all seriousness, we do find ourselves that it's pressing even on the economy. I mean, the debt crisis and everything that apparently is all over now, it really isn't. Because, you know, the, the Rothschilds, they're the ones that actually funded the Third Reich. They're the ones that funded the Third Reich. And they're now funding the final phase 
of what is called the Fourth Reich. But you don't hear anything about that today. You see, the Rothschilds funded Hitler through the Bank of England. The heart of the war machine of Hitler was the chemical giant, of course, IG Farben. That was the heart of the Hitler war machine, was the chemical giant I.B. Farben, which had a division in America that was controlled by the Rothschilds. You see, Hitler's I.G. Farben ran Auschwitz, and it was a division of Standard Oil, officially owned by the Rockefellers. Connect the dots. You see, the victors are the ones that write the history that is taught to your children, unless you do your due diligence and you go, that is not true history. You see, finally, right now, history is being rewritten. And I'm glad for that. Because people today will still be like, you know, Hitler, well, he died in a bunker in Germany. And then you go, well, how do you know that? Based upon what? Based upon an article that came out at the time done by one man. But look, if you actually look at it, though, finally the real history is coming out. The fact that Hitler and Eva Brown didn't die in the Fuhrer bunker in Berlin, April 27, 1945. But, in fact, there is more proof, more evidence astounding documents upon documents upon documents that Hitler died February 13th, 1962 in a small valley in a village in remote Argentina because there was a trade with the royals for all the booty of war hidden throughout Europe. And if anyone thinks that what I just said is crazy... I will challenge you right now. You bring the documentation, you can get it off the internet, that proves that Hitler was burnt at the Fuhrer bunker, and I'll bring the documentation that shows that he died in Argentina, and let the people decide. Because you'll find the Fuhrer bunker documentation is about this deep, and you'll find the documentation including the route, the routes of the, um, help me, submarines, and the flight patterns before they got out of Europe, and all the money trail is huge. It's huge. And finally, people are starting to question that. Because the evidence is out. Unless you keep regurgitating the same old stories. You see, but once a truth has been established, do you know how hard it is to undo that lie? Because it has been told long enough? You're crazy. That's the problem. This world is so crazy that you and I, when we talk of truth... We are viewed as crazy because that world is so far gone that to think that you would kneel down, pray, mikvah, and be a holy people is so foreign. It's so foreign. It's so foreign. The British royal family that helped create Hitler's Nazi regime, the British started secretly funding the National Socialist German Workers' Party through Britain's Lord Norman and Germany's former Reichsbank president, Hagelmar, um, I don't know how you pronounce that. Wally will be up here this weekend. 
Shachat. I don't know how you pronounce that. That's a tough word. Anyway, he, um, he got the backing of the major industrialists in Germany. The highest levels of British society secretly backed Hitler, including Neville Chamberlain. The British press magnate, Lord Beaverbrook, the governor of the Bank of England, Montego Norman, and most notably, King Edward VIII. They all backed Hitler's war machine. And then you start digging into Adolf Hitler, and you'll realize that his father, who was Alois Hitler, he was the illegitimate son of Maria Anna um, Schlickgruber, and it was generally supposed the father of Alois Hitler, Schickgruber, was Johann Gorg Heidler. But what you'll find out was that Maria Anna Schickruber lived in Vienna when she conceived. And at that time, she was employed, Hitler's mother, she was employed as a maid in the house of Baron de Rothschild. Once the family discovered her pregnancy, she was back home where Alois was born. Baron de Rothschild was Hitler's granddad. Baron de Rothschild was Hitler's granddad. But Hitler not only led the Reich in World War II, he was a foot soldier in Edward's Edward's World War I as well. You see, it's astounding the connections as you go through. King King Edward VII was in the pay of the Rothschilds, and he was the one that was responsible for World War I. Nathan Rothschild, this is what he has to say, I care not what puppet is placed upon the throne of England to rule the empire on which the sun never sets. The man who controls Britain's money supply controls the British empire, and I control the British money supply. Queen Victoria, Edward's mother and children with Lionel the rich Rothschild and two of Edward's sisters, Helena and Beatrice, they were Rothschilds too. The British royal family is like a biological, financial and moral subset of the Rothschild international bankers that was at war against the America colonialists and still at war against Bible-believing people today in America that would question this. Edward VII was the mentally deficient product of the marriage between Queen Victoria and her first cousin, Albert, and he had many children. His eldest son, Clarence, was so mentally deranged that he was the prime suspect of the Jack the Ripper murders, and people don't even realize that. Edward VII, he had dozens of mistresses. One of these was the Jewish-born lady, Randolph Jean Jerome Churchill. Edward VII was Winston Churchill's real father. Churchill was an Ashkenazi Jewish aristocrat. I mean, it's crazy. And now you fast forward to the time that we're living in, and we've got, we had... Princess Diana, well, she was Ashkenazi too. Diana's mother was Frances Shankide, born Frances Ruth Burke Roche, or Rothschild, because she had relationships with a Jewish banker called James Goldsmith while she was married to the Earl John Spencer. Diana, 
born in 1961, was the illegitimate child of Goldsmith and was not the real daughter of the Earl of Spencer. So Harry and William, they're Ashkenazi. It's crazy. Now, of course, everyone's all happy about Kate Middleton, but you track this back. Kate Middleton's mother was surnamed Goldsmith before marrying Kate's father. Anyway, it doesn't really matter because Kate and William were already family before they got married, going back to 1576 with Sir Thomas Leighton and Elizabeth Knowles. They were already family. Or you think they just, oh, oh, you know, they just just chose this girl to marry? No way. Why is this important? Why, what has this even got anything to do with Hebrews chapter 5, you may ask? <laughs> right? <laughs> My wife's like, yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm wondering. But it does. At least in my mind, in my world, it does. Very much so. Because Rabbi Richman of the Temple Institute and Rabbi Glick the general director of the Temple Institute in Jerusalem, they have announced the completion of the Zitz. What is the Zitz, you would ask? It's the high priest's headplate. They've announced that the high priest's headplate is now ready for use. All they need is the New World Order Temple. So ultimately, the end game is these insane psychopaths that have their genealogy all the way back to Ramesses II, the pharaonic bloodline that has literally wreaked havoc, mayhem, and murder upon humanity all the way through Europe all the way through the British Empire to the Americas, the connections with the royals, the presidents to our current day, that now use ISIS as their army to go around and subdue other nations that aren't on board with them, that would try and fight their fraudulent fiat currency system, that they are now what? Ultimately, their end game is to elect one as the high priest of Jerusalem in the Ashkenazi temple that is going to be built. That is the end game. And the scripture says at that time, that's when we deal with the prophecies that spoken by Rav Shaliaksha or the Rabbi Apostle Paul to the Thessalonians, the man of sin. The Daniel 9.26 prophecy. So yes, this is important because you and I are living in a parallel universe. And unless we wake up to this presidential nonsense, this financial nonsense, this terrorist nonsense that has been manufactured because it's always been that way, we must come out of her, my people. We must wake up to the reality of what was going on in the wilderness, what was going on with the audience of 
the writer of the book of Hebrews, when he was communicating to them, I truly believe that we live in a parallel universe because they are looking to crown a high priest up on an Ashkenazi temple in Jerusalem. They've already created his headplate ready for use by the Illuminati. And by Illuminati rights, William with both the lineage and the throne, has the rights, according to these psychopaths, to be the next high priest and king of Jerusalem. Matthew eleven twelve, And from the days of Yochanan Chamatbil, John the Baptist, until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. Now on to Hebrews chapter 5, verse 3. (laughs) See, there's that unbalance again. There's that unbalance again. Woo! I can't help it. It's the way I am. I'm working on it. And because of these things, he is obliged to sacrifice for the people and also for himself on account of of his own sins. This is talking, of course, of the corrupted Levitical priesthood. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he that is called of Yahweh, as was Aaron. So also the Moshiach esteemed not himself to be made Kohen Haggadol high priest, but he said of him, you are my son today, have I brought you forth. Today have I brought you forth. And this, of course, comes from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. Today, our author has in mind, of course, Moshiach's enthronement. The day when the Most High gave public notice that he had exalted the Zedek as both Master and Messiah. And that's our only hope. That is our only hope. Because he is both Davidic Messiah and high priest. Not William. Not what these psychopaths want to continue to do. And they have been doing. The point of me going into all of that was to sober us up and realize the days that we live in. The point of all of that was to sober us up and to realize the days that we live in. And he also, verse 6, in another place, you are a Kohen, you are a Kohen, a priest. Leolam Vayed, forever and ever, after the order of Malkitzedek. You see, what many people fail to realize is that after King David claimed Jerusalem as his capital in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 6, he and his descendants after him received the priestly duties of Melchizedek as their own to guard. They had the job to guard the priestly duties of Melchizedek until the time of Moshiach. They couldn't implement them 
because they were still under the book of the law. They had to wait for the Melchizedek to come, but they guarded those duties until the time of Yahusha. In 2 Samuel 8, verse 18, it says, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and David's sons were chief priests. The Hebrew word there is koanim. David and his heirs became guardians to the Malkitzedic kingship and the priesthood and the traditions in lieu of Yahusha's re-ratification of it. It's very important that we understand that because the Qumran community had an ever-present expectation in both the lay and kingly Messiah. In the Testament of the Twelve Patriarchs, we see this evidenced. In um, the Qumran scroll 1QS910, it is written, They shall depart none from the counsels of the law to walk in all the stubbornness of their hearts but shall be ruled by the primitive precepts in which the men of the community were first instructed until there shall come the prophet and the Messiah of Akron and Israel. Now, during the war of liberation that was led by the false Messiah, Shimon Bar Kokhba, during the Bar Kokhba revolts, which happened 132 to 135 of the common era, they actually had coinage that was minted that had King Kokba on one side and Eliezer the priest on the other side. So they understood that there would be this king priest, but they couldn't understand that it was one office. So even during the time of the Bar Kokba revolts, they had the king on one side Kochbar and Eliezer on the other side of the coinage. This drives home that there was this expectation of a king priest. And that's what the author is communicating. Yet still, many were unable to realize that the key is that the roles of Aaron and Israel were fulfilled in one person. In one person, Yahusha, the Malkitzedek. So they were deceived and slaughtered because they didn't understand that. And they went after Bar Kokhba. And if you and I don't get this ever-present Malkitzedek reality, we go pandering after the politicians. We go pandering after the Levitical hierarchy. We go pandering after everything Jewish and everything the state of Zionist Israel. Guess what? You'll get slaughtered too. So there. Because you end up going on some silly little trek up to the Temple Mount thinking you're being super Hebraic and you'll get caught up in all of that palaver with the Ashkenazis where the man of sin will come out. Because we have another altar on the Mount of Olives, where they that are involved in all of that Levitical hierarchy, they have no right to eat. And that's what it's coming down to. It's an end game. All of this presidential stuff, all of this globalist stuff, it's about the Jerusalem high priesthood. Don't forget that. 
It's ultimately about the high priesthood. It always has been about the high priesthood. That's why Satan was kicked out of heaven, Ezekiel 28. It's always been about the high priesthood. So in these days and in this time, in 2016, you want to talk to me about the Levitical high priesthood? You're insane. Because you are just getting yourself as cannon fodder for the Illuminati and the New World Order. Cannon fodder. Here's serious stuff. As you can see. But we do today. We have men who aren't qualified stating by false genealogy and Levitical hierarchy that they're the enlightened ones of the Levitical priesthood and should teach you the Torah. When in reality, Yahuwah has enlightened his people together as Echad. He doesn't enlighten someone who's got some false, fake internet genealogy that they can say that they're Levites, Jewish, and descendants of Aaron. No, he's enlightened all of his people as, king, as a kingdom of priests under the order of man. Not, not one person. So that you have to go and it, it's, it's, it's crazy. He's enlightened you all together as Echad in the priesthood of a different order. Remember, it was not only the Pharisees, but the chief priests and scribes, those of the parties of the Sadducees, that were the principal critics of the Mashiach's priesthood. They are today too. You'll see the louder voices that are criticizing the Malkitzedic ministry. They're all bound up in fake, messianic, Jewish genealogical chasing. They are. Same deal as in the first century. Nothing new under the sun. Fact is, most of them were Pentecostal Baptists until they decided that they had heirs in their name. And then it's like, well, you have heirs. That must mean that you're like a Sephardic, right? And that's how it goes. Hernandez, oh, I must be a, a Sephardic Jew. And more and more and more. And if you think I'm joking, just hang around long enough and you'll see it. I have, and I know many have also. The reality is, is that Yahusha now fills a role that in this time, his time, was often occupied by those who were inept, incomplete, and they were downright wicked. What a contrast our author is painting with Mashiach to the high priests of the first century. And what a contrast for us today, Moshiach is, to those of the politicians that are peddled before us. Such a contrast, and we have to keep our eye on the goal. Yahusha's priesthood had a precedent established prior to the founding of Israel as a nation and is therefore the higher and more ancient priesthood. His priesthood goes beyond the Levitical priesthood. His personal death, his personal death goes beyond the sacrificial system. And his, ridden bod his risen body, it builds a much, much better temple. Verse 7 says, Who in the days of his flesh 
when he had offered up tefillot, prayers and supplication with strong crying and tears to him, was able to save him from the death, was heard. This speaks of Gethsemane, this very verse, verse 7. And Mark tells us that horror and dismay came over him. And Yahushua said to the Talmudim, my heart is ready to break with grief. Stop here. Stay awake. Stay awake. Luke 22, verse 44. And being in agony, he prayed. He prayed even more earnestly. And his sweat, it was as great drops of blood that fell down upon the ground. Mark 14, verse 33. And he took with him Kiefer and Yaakov and Yochanan. And he began to be very pressed down and to be deeply distressed. And he said to them, my being, my being is exceedingly sorrowful unto death. Tarry here, wait, watch. And he went. Just forward a little, and he fell down prostrate upon the ground, and he made prayer tefillah that if it were possible, that the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Abba, all things are possible for you. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. The connecting verse in our text, verse 7. And in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up tefillot, prayers and supplications and strong crying and tears to him that was able to save him from death and was, was not heard? Was not heard. No, was heard. Are you sure? So his prayer was heard. It was answered. Are you sure? Because the Christian commentators will tell you that what he was praying, that cup that he was praying to be removed from him was the cup of the cross. Was that removed from him? Was that removed from him? No, it wasn't, was it? But our text says what? So what's going on? This is not referring to the Mashiach trying to get out of the crucifixion, as Christian commentators would try and explain. This has to do with another cup, the cup which he warned James and John they would have to drink of if they wanted to share his glory, Mark 10, 38. No, this cup, this one that's spoken of here, this speaks of the cup of sorrowful death. The cup of sorrowful death. You see, our master prayed in Gethsemane that he might be saved from dying right there and then. That's what he was praying. That the cup of sorrowful death might be removed from him. That he was going to be slain right there and then through physical exhaustion and satanic attack. The cup he prayed to be delivered from was not the death on the tree, not for grace to escape it. Had he died in the garden, 
no greater calamity. No greater calamity could possibly have befallen on mankind. Think about it. The offering up of his life, not my will, but yours, was the ransom for many. The ransom for many established from the foundation of the earth. Think about this. He didn't try to get out of the crucifixion. He wanted to get through being slain right there in the garden through physical exhaustion. He's bleeding blood and he is under such satanic assault that he cries out for the cup of sorrows. The cup of sorrowful death to be removed from him. And many people confuse this with what, of course, James and John were asking to drink of. Mark 10.38. Though he was the son, verse 8, yet he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. And he grew to be perfect and he became the author of eternal salvation to all of them that obey him. I am just moved right now by the Ruach HaKodesh of just the immensity of how we live. When I read these verses and I see what he's gone through and I see where we're living and the craziness, all this stuff I've been sharing with you and the president. It's overwhelming. It's so sobering, isn't it? The fear of Yahuwah is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of Yahuwah is the beginning of wisdom and then everything starts to unravel. And you step through the veil and you're like, it's a crazy puppet show out there. But unless you have the fear of Yahweh, the veil will never unravel. You could spend your whole life. What a waste of a life, right? What a waste of a life not to have the glimpses that you and I have today. Just in this time together. Just in this time together, if you really just meditate on what was just communicated to you there of the cup of sorrowful death, and you just meditate on that for a week, that will blow your mind. Because for 2,000 years, they've been telling you that it was something else. And if you look at the consequences of that, and you said right here in verse 7, whatever he prayed, that was heard. It was answered. He was delivered from the death. So it can't mean the cross, right? The tree. Because he did die. Yes, I know. He rose, of course. But he had to die first to rise. Why would he ask to get out of that? Knowing that our redemption was nigh. Verse 11. About whom we have many things to, to say, but some are hard to explain. Now he's going to take a break. From the Malkit Zedek. For the next few weeks, you're going to see the author's going to take a break from the Malkit Zedek. Why? Because the audience is too spiritually immature that they're not going to get the Malkit Zedek. So he's going to have to now backtrack. He's going to have to admonish them 
to leave behind the Levitical hierarchy, to leave behind the presidential propaganda, if you will, and to press on to spiritual maturity. But if they can't leave that behind, they are never going to get any Melchizedek revelation. So he's now going to spend a few moments, a few chapters in our time, admonishing them to leave that stuff behind so that they can press forward to the maturity that is the meat of the word, which, of course, is the Malkitzedic. Because he says in verse 10, he was called of Yahweh a Kohen Haggadah, a high priest after the order of Malkitzedic, after whom we have many things to say, but some are hard to explain, seeing you are dull of hearing. For when by this time you ought to be Maureen, teachers, you have the need that someone teach you again the first principles of the primary writings of Yahuwah. But you have become those that need milk and not strong meat. For everyone that uses milk is unskilled in the word of Zadachah, righteousness, and he is a baby. But strong meat belongs to them that are mature, even those who by reason of using the word have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. You see, the contrast right here between milk and meat was commonplace in Greek moral philosophy of the day. It comes up in 1 Corinthians, does it not? This contrast between milk and meat. And today's American church as a whole subsists most part on milk. Most part on milk. Teaching what? The elementary principles of Christ or the elementary Christian ethics. Well, the worldly spirit of syncretism is actually accepted. It's accepted as part of Western society as a whole. That's the milk. In reality, we find many, many congregations are, differ little from the YMCA or a country club. And it's very sad. They must be treated as spiritual infants because they're unable to assimilate the spiritual meat because of the anchor of carnality that they're dragging through their life. You see, the Shabbat, the Feast of Yahuwah, the dietary commandments, and the call of everything Malkitzedek are spiritual disciplines that force you to bury the flesh. That's hard to do. You must leave babyhood, you must leave milk, and you must press on to the meat of maturity. And the danger is that if you don't, you'll make an irreversible decision that will permanently keep you in a state of spiritual immaturity. And I feel extremely blessed, because it was only 10, 12 years ago that I came into the Torah. And there's sometimes you don't see people that you were at church with for many years. And then you bump into them, you know, 10 years later, and you have conversate, and they're still right. They're like two sermons ahead of you, of where you were 12 years ago. And you're like, that was, where's the growth? They're still talking about death, burial, resurrection. 
which are biblical truths. Don't get me wrong. But we must, that is the elementary principles of Christ. Yes, we know he died. Yes, we know he was buried. Yes, we know he was raised from the dead. And yes, we know if you repent, that's key, that's often left out, you will receive forgiveness of your sins and you can walk in righteousness and salvation. That is an elementary message that is preached week in, week out, week in, week out. And then, you know, they'll bring up the old, you know, Calvinism and all of these. I mean, nothing new. No progression because they're babes. And it's like, I haven't seen you, brother, in a decade. What's going on? No new revelation. No new discipleship. Same old, same old. Generation upon generation upon. How does that happen? Because they made an irreversible decision that kept them in spiritual immaturity. And you and I could have very easily have been there too. But when that decision came, you made the tough decision. You made the tough decision, and he then just poured. I mean, it's, a, it's just like a, it's like a fire hose. Is it not? You're like, I don't think I can take any more. And then another brother shoots you another link. Check this out. You're like, oh, my goodness. And then, another, I mean, it's like, Check out this YouTube. Check out this, this Dead Sea Scrolls. Check out the Testament of Levi. And you're like, oh, oh. I mean, there were days when I was hungry and thirsty. And now it's like I'm like overflowing. I can barely keep up. It's amazing. Amazing. The revelation, the revelation, the anointing keeps coming and coming and coming. What can't go unnoticed though in close is this phrase milk and meat it's association with Corinth and Apollos' association with Corinth remember when we began this study that I threw out there possible that the author could be Apollos this is another link here between this phrase and the Corinthian congregation and of course Apollos' very close link to that Corinthian congregation too. Peter picks up on the phrase again in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 2 in regards to our inner soul health. Who we are. Our very essence is dependent on pressing onto the meat of the word and to the meat of doctrine. The statement that the recipients of this letter ought to by now have qualified as teachers Teachers of others gives me cause personally to identify them with converted Levitical priests. The very converted Levitical priests of Acts chapter 6 verse 7. The idea that converted neophytes would be expected to become teachers seems quite implausible to me. That's why I believe this is referencing those converted Levitical priests. You ought to be teachers now. You ought to be teachers of now, but you're still being enticed to go back to that system, which are the elementary milk. 
You must leave that so that you can press on to full Melchizedek maturity. And as Kohanim priests, you can then press on. But you've got to teach the Melchizedek. You have got to leave that behind so you can come on and embrace this. I believe it's referencing those Levitical priests. But as you can see, right here in Hebrews chapter 5, the important thrust, I believe, is to recognize that we do live in a parallel universe. Just as the priesthood had been corrupted and had been sold by politicians, governors, and statesmen for hundreds of years, we now find ourselves thousands of years later, living in a very similar hierarchy governed system. We are under the governorship of this United States, which has been sold and sold and sold since its inception in 1776 and can connect all the way back through the royal bloodline, all the way through the kings and queens of France, back through and tracing that all the way back to Ramesses II. And if you really want to get cray-cray, you can just start looking at the close connection between President Barack Obama and King Tut's father. That, my friends, is a wormhole of unimaginable proportions. <laughs> Questions, comments at all? <laughs> yes, yes, we have a few in the back. We are looking for the mic. Test, test, test. First statement is for uh, Corey, actually. He did a great job tonight, and the Internet audience loved it. Uh, um, yes. What so a, they wanted to just bless him with that. The hallelujah. Second, <laughs> the second was... Control um, room, Starship Enterprise, <laughs> Captain Kirk. Engage. Yes. Um, the first one is, what book would you recommend to start if we wanted to read about uh, some of the history and the bloodlines of that nature? Oh. I don't know right now. I'd have to look at my library at home. I've, I've just gone through so much. Say that again. Okay. Fritz Springmeier. Bloodlines of, Bloodlines the, Illuminati of the Illuminati by Fritz Springmeier, apparently. Okay. And the other one was... A, good. The second one was that uh, they just... Uh, Jay Randall wanted me to mention that um, the church is drinking warm milk and it's putting them to sleep. Warm milk putting them to sleep. Okay, yeah, many it is. Um, you know, when you were talking about William, I think a lot of people have said, oh, you know, it's going to be Charles. But when you said William, and I think about the, the, the facade that William has right now, just this family man and he's just this sweet guy, okay? But when you were talking about that, isn't there a scripture that talks about how Satan will enter into him, into the man of sin? Mm -hmm. And I think that, well, then that's where the change would happen. Yeah. 
in an instant. Yes, brother. A couple of questions. One, uh, how do you spell Bar Kokhba? Bar Kokhba. Yes, thank you. B-A-R-K-O-C-H-B-A, I believe. Okay. And then uh, in the interest of uh, two or three witnesses, you said that we need to wake up, we need to be sober, and we need to come out of her. I'm sitting here feeling like I am and I have, but is there any way to, how do you know? If you're awake, if you're sober, if you've come out of her, how do you know? That's a great question. How do you know? How do we know if we're awake, if we've woken up and we've come out of her? Open it up. Yeah. It's a great question. That's a question of conviction. I mean, we don't want to be deceiving ourselves, right? Because we certainly don't want to trust our hearts a heart is wicked above all things. Man, who can know it? So, yes. The word. Ruach and Emet, spirit and truth. Syncretism. Idolatry. Graven images. They're big ones. Graven images, to me, is a huge thing. Because we live in such an image world. And we have so many attachments to them. I mean, you might not want to take it. You may, as far as I have done. But I'm very serious about that stuff. So, you know, we don't have any images in our house. Um, now, people see me driving here with my truck and go, hey, man, you got a massive ram on my truck. I say, well, you know, it's outside my gates. But, you know, today at least anyway. Well, maybe I should get a hacksaw and take that thing off, you know. We could, we could melt it down and uh, turn it into a cannonball or something and fire it at the Illuminati. But all that to say this, you know, take stock of, of your house first. Be very careful of, um, you know, witches and warlocks will often try and infiltrate the community of faith and they will give gifts and they'll have curses and whatnot on them, and then you'll take those home with you. So I'm very careful of accepting things. Um, Be very careful of that, um, because we have to understand that they're going to try and infiltrate the faith. Um, In the Scripture, we do see that um, leprosy, it dwells on garments, in houses, and on us. So being defiled, I'm very careful about taking secondhand clothing, that type of thing, um, because you, you, you just don't know. You've got to be careful because you're exchanging garments. So I take that stuff very literally. Um, you know, there's just, just to be discerning. Do you want to add anything on that? Because we've had the conversation about that, haven't we, honey? No, I, think, I think that was it. Was it about houses, oh, places, ha- houses, houses, garments, and people? Houses, places. garments, and people. You have to be very careful. You have to be discerning. Does that make sense, or did that spook you all out? Any other um, insight? Yeah. Just simply put, something that encouraged my heart, because when I came into the understanding of Shabbat and Sabbath, etc., um, our family, it was just taking the step towards understanding the truths 
and actually walking them out led us to know we may not know exactly everything that we're doing today, but we know we're going in the right direction. And I, you know, I think uh, just knowing that for me was brought peace. Mm-hmm. And um, that was over 10 years ago. And I'm here today. And I, I feel like, how do you know you've come out? You look back and you realize how far he's brought you. Yeah, you do. And meditate on Acts 15. That's really that sign of coming out is Acts 15. Abstain from meat sacrifice to idols. That means worship Yahuwah the way that Yahuwah wants to be worshipped. Because if you worship him the way that a heathen worships their Elohim and you get into syncretism, then he will view that as meat sacrifice to an idol. Number two, abstain from sexual immorality. Leviticus 18 and 20. We've got to abstain from that. We have to look at that. We have to make a covenant with our eyes, a covenant with our hearts. We have to live in purity and holiness. And number three, abstain from things strangled in blood, meaning go back to um, the Bible, eat Bible ways, Bible bread and Bible things, and you'll have that healthy, blessed life. And the fourth thing, of course, is you want to go to the congregation, be with the brethren on Shabbat, and listen to the instruction that's going to take you all the way back to Moses and bring you forward. And I think that is a sign that you have come out of her, my people. Yes, yes. Brother, yeah? Um, and then yes, we had a question about uh, uh, can you pray over items and cleanse them? Can you pray over items and cleanse them? Well, if it's an, a graven image, it's a graven image. Burn it, you know? You can't change it, you know? I mean, what are some of the things that we've... We've, I mean, goodness gracious, who knows? We've burnt so much stuff, haven't we? A lot of children's, lot of children's toys. Oh, my goodness. My mum brought over, you know, a bunch of children's toys. I'm like, they're all gay. We're going to burn them. You know, I mean, <laughs> I mean, they're crazy. What was it? What was that stuff? Teletubbies. I mean, those things are just like from hell. I mean, and then, I mean... <laughs> I was just being a little funny there, but seriously. So, yeah, mom, if you're watching, Teletubbies, double thumbs down. <laughs> she doesn't bring any stuff like that anymore. Uh, one more thing, just because I wanted to give that gentleman uh, scripture, and that's First John uh, chapter 2, um, and that is, for he is himself the atonement for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for all the world. And by this we will be sensible that we know him if we keep his commandments. For he says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Um, and that goes for the word. If we cannot rely on the word being the truth, then there's no truth in him. So we have to keep seeking that truth in the spirit so that we can know that we are in him and he in us and that he is true. Nice. And then we had a question up here up front, I believe. Obviously stirred a little bit today because there's some questions, so that's always exciting. I like that. Otherwise, I sit up here or stand up here and I feel all alone. (laughs) Is that microphone on, brother? Yeah, hit the bottom. It'll go green. Green, light green. Um, I think a good sign that you know you've come out is that things are not convenient anymore. 
And people think you're crazy. Yeah, I'd like and if that wouldn't be a sign. <laughs> but I'd like to know the verse that says it has to be difficult. But you're right, yes. Um, and you'll probably receive some persecution in some way. Yes, yes. Yes, up here from the People's Republic. You, you right couldn't there, stand man. the teaching today, could you? I know you can't stand history. Sorry about that, brother. Um, just to kind of reiterate what you said, um, I have the privilege to, to speak to a couple of former witches, and everything you said is true. I mean, it's very real. What they do, pray over objects. They do do incantations. Um, and also, the Wiccan especially will have people go into a church or a, or a fellowship and cause confusion. That's their main goal. And that's real. I mean, they do those things. However, another interesting thing is if you do find yourself um, inundated with, with fear in your home, I'll tell you, praise God and clap and sing. Mm. It'll leave. Worship. Trust me. Worship. We've done worship. it over and over and over yes. again. It works because the Lord's the word says it works, and believe me, it's real. <coughs> but use it. We don't have to. You know, the gates of hell get pushed back. They don't get pushed on us. Yes. We win. Amen. Read the back of the book. Amen. Amen. That's great. So definitely take an inventory of your house. Things that have been handed down to you, objects, images that type of thing. I know the Amish, they really got that in the bag. They take it all the way down to two-dimensional. I'm kind of at the belief of the three-dimensional, so we, you know, we, we, we don't mind photographs and um, pictures, but we won't get into anything three-dimensional. That's why our, if you come around our house, you'll notice our kids have no toys. No, they do have toys. They just don't have dolls. But if they, do have, they do have a couple of dolls, but they've got no faces. We buy them from the Amish. We got a little deal going to say, you know, we give you some Torah, you give us some Amish dolls. <laughs> All right. But another thing, though, just a slight side note on that. If any of you here have invited any of my kids over to your house and then you noticed that the dolls on your kids' toys no longer have eyes... I do apologize, but they do have a tendency to tear out the eyes and rip off the faces of dolls now. That did get brought to our attention once, did it not? I think so. Oh, okay. We had to have a family meeting about that. Children. (laughs) All right. Brother John is looking at me like, wrap it up. Abba, we thank you so much, Abba, truly for the friendship, the fun, the fellowship, but the soberness and seriousness of your word, Abba. I just thank you for the conviction that we all have, Abba. Are we on the right path? Abba, how do we know? How do we know? Abba, we ask your Ruach HaKodesh would convict us of sin. Convict us of sin and lead us into repentance and give us your shalom that we may fight another day, Abba, in the victory 
the victory that you have given your people. And Abba, I do pray right now a special bracha of joy, simcha, joy, Abba Yahuwah, over your people. The Abba, that we could be joyous because we see, Abba, that your kingdom, your kingdom has come and it's inside of us. And we praise your great name, Yahuwah. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Bless you.